Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. On Commons People this week, Nigel Farage pulls back. The Brexit Party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. But will the Remain Alliance respond? Do the noble thing for the sake of politics in this country. And what's really going on with the party's spending pledges? The idea that there's going to be a four-day week in the NHS on December the 13th, which Matt Hancock was suggesting in his press release last night, was just nonsense. It was laughable. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. Nice to see you. Hello, nice to see you as always. Uh, Rachel Wearmouth is also here. Hello. Hi Rachel. And we've got a very special guest, the Liberal Democrat candidate for the cities of London and Westminster, Chukka Ramuna. Hi. Hi Chukka. Thank you. How are you? Good. Election going well? Yeah, it's it's an extraordinary election. It's very different. Um, It's got a different vibe. And you're knocking on doors in the dark, yeah. <laughs> whereas usually when you were doing it in like March through eight, through May, it's kind of light. So, um, and it's it does fit. It does feel like something is going on. All right. Well, let's talk about yeah. it. This week mm-hmm. we've had the first genuinely big moment of the campaign so far, as Nigel Farage announced he would be pulling Brexit Party candidates out of the 317 seats the Tories won in the last election. But afterwards, Farage refused almost immediate demands to withdraw from Tory target seats to ensure a pro-Brexit majority in Parliament. Let's have a listen to why he U-turned and decided to form what he called a unilateral leave alliance. I have got no great love for the Conservative Party at all. But I can see right now that by giving Boris half a chance, by keeping him honest and holding him to account, by getting people in, and by stopping the fanatics in the Liberal Democrats. I mean, they even want to revoke the result of the referendum. No, I think our action, this announcement today, prevents a second referendum from happening. And that, to me, I think right now is the single most important thing in our country. Paul, how significant was Farage's move? Well, we all reacted on the day as thinking, oh, this is big. But many of us said within seconds of him announcing, actually, yeah, pulling from Tory seats is one thing. What about, are you going to pull from Labour seats? Are you going to pull from the other seats, all the target seats? Or are you generally going to, you know, undermine uh, the Tories' attempt to get a majority? Um, And so it's certainly big because... You know, they've got a, we're in a four party system right now, and we could be reduced to basically a sort of three party system. We're talking England and Wales, I mean, England, I should say. Um, and, and that's why it's significant. But I did think it showed that ultimately Nigel Farage. Is the biggest problem for him is that it makes him look like every other politician. It makes him look like a backroom dealer, makes him look like someone who's changed his word within a week. His main, you know, political narrative is the betrayal narrative. And now he's already got 
members of his own Brexit party saying you're betraying our principles. And it's of all the people, you would have thought Farage wouldn't abandon that key bit of his brand, which is, look, all the rest of them, all the politicians, you can't trust the word they say, but you can stick with me. And now within a week, he's flipped on the most fundamental thing, which is this is not Brexit, he kept saying. And now he's saying it's not Brexit, but you should vote for it. Um, so I think it's quite a tough week for Farage, but it also shows that, that Johnson is much better and more skilled at this stuff than people give him credit for. I think he did up Farage like a kipper. He dangled this offer of a Canada plus style agreement. And yeah, there'd be no extension to the transition of Brexit and all that. And he, and he basically, yeah. Farage bought it. There was that Twitter video on Sunday, wasn't there? Yeah. Which was clearly aimed at Farage. I think only had like a few thousand views, whereas normally his videos would get millions yeah, it of gave, views. Yeah, it gave him yeah. a laddie to climb down, yeah. try and save some face, and that's all it was. And whether or not you could ever trust what Johnson says in that video is another issue. Now, Farage said he was doing this to deny the Lib Dem seats in an effort to stop a second referendum. Are you worried? No. Especially in the South <laughs> I mean, I think um, uh, there's two ways of looking at it. You could say that all of the Brexit Party vote in, say, our seats in the Southwest would just transfer to the Tories. I think to the extent that there was going to be a transfer across to the Tories, a lot of that happened when Boris Johnson became the leader of the Conservative Party. And I think the remaining you know, people indicating they were going to vote for the Brexit Party are probably going to be harder to shift to the Tories than many think. You know, there is a kind of cultural side to this about, you know, from your background, voting for somebody like Boris Johnson, who, you know, is looks, feels and sounds like a upper-crust Etonian who doesn't really relate to your life. And that's why, actually, the Brexit Party, in many areas, does better at taking Labour vote than it does... Um, than the Tory party does. And I think that's underestimated. Um, And you saw that a bit in 2017 when there was a presumption that Theresa May would be able to eat into the kind of support base that the Brexit party looks to. And um, it just didn't quite happen in that way. I mean, the second thing, the other dynamic to this is that it's just how much this toxifies conservatives in the eyes of a lot of those kind of centre-ground, moderate, one-nation type Um, Tory voters, which there are a huge amount of in the cities of London and Westminster. Is Um, that where you're standing? (laughs) (laughs) Put it this way, you you want to win, don't you? But um, I wouldn't say that is the only reason I'm I'm standing. I know the constituency well. Um, But they, you know, they abhor um, this kind of Trump, Farage, Johnson style politics, which is just not what they are they're not they're not populist right-wing nationalists in the cities of london and westminster you know these are liberal-minded socially and economically admittedly people who are progressive and internationalist and that kind of farage trump johnson politics is just not who they are and so for from my point of view the fact that you've got this pact and come on it is a pact um it's just albeit informal it actually is helps me get those remaining moderate Tories who are not quite there yet over the line to vote for the Liberal Do you think the Tories, you know, you're an experienced political operator, do you think the Tories would have spoken to Farage about this? Yes. I mean, the ERG have been conducting negotiations for months now, and the ERG run the Tory party now. Um, So, I mean, to be, you know, and the choreography of it, I think, is actually really bad for Boris Johnson, because the most unpopular politician in many respects in the country after... Uh, Johnson and Corbyn is Donald Trump 
And, you know, you just look at it to your, to your average person who's not massively engaged in the bubble like we sometimes are. You know, Donald Trump gives the order. You know, I like Boris. He's the, you know, Britain's Trump. And I like Farage and they should work together. Farage follows the order, obliges, and then Johnson and him have a pact. I mean, it's a terrible look. Yeah, Chuck is obviously hopeful this can help him. Could it help Labour as well? I think the general consensus on Labour is that it, it doesn't really help them, particularly if you're looking sort of in the north, um, where a lot of the Leave voters are actually never likely to vote Conservative because they're just because of history, particularly like in coal fields. Um, it does send a clear message that it's okay to vote Conservative if you're a, a, a Brexit voter, but that doesn't necessarily mean they'll, they're going to go ahead and do that. Um, I think an interesting question is what, what UKIP does now, if they could actually start campaigning again, make, make a bit of hay out of the betrayal narrative. Um, I think I think Chuck is right to say that a lot of a lot of Labour voters might might look at the Conservative Party now as, as toxified as well. You know, if they're kind of more of a Remainer Labour voter who kind of is a very Corbyn sceptic, they might wait up and look at the Conservative Party and think, oh, I'm not too sure about this. These two kind of working together, so it's kind of a mixed mixed bag for Labour, I think. There's two other dynamics actually. In some senses, it's helpful to Labour. Because if you look at some of those seats in the North East, in Yorkshire, in the West Midlands, where, you know, Hartlepool, say, for example, where um, uh, the Brexit Party pose a real challenge to Labour, well, Labour can now just say, well, the Brexit Party are just a bunch of Tories, um, you know, in all of those Labour-facing seats. The other thing, actually, that was actually quite helpful, um, and I don't think Farage meant it in this way at all, but he said, you know, him saying the reason he was doing this was because the Liberal Democrats can take from the... Um, Conservatives, of course, that gives an instruction to all the anti-Tory or all the anti-Leave, <laughs> the, the all the anti-Tory, all the Remain voters in our south in the southwest seats who might vote Labour to vote Liberal Democrat, um, which of course we'll be using. Well, there's another side. To, there's <laughs> yeah. another side to this so-called Leave Alliance. It's left the Lib Dems facing questions over why they won't extend the Remain Alliance to include pro-EU Labour candidates. Uh, one of Lib Dem candidate Tim Walker pulled out of Canterbury to give Labour a free run, and another Guy Kiddy in Hyde Peak said today he would stand, but he'd tell people to vote Labour, and demanded an apology from the party to Walker, who's facing disciplinary action. Let's have a listen. Is your position basically you'll stand, but you're saying to people, don't actually vote for me? I will stand. I will encourage people to vote for uh, the candidate, the Labour candidate, who has the best chance of uh, beating it's the Tory in high peak, but, but I will stand there still, in, as I say, on the proviso that I get this apology and Tim Walker gets this apology, because there are people who will not vote for the Liberal, Liberal Democrat I candidate. Can't come what think. may, and please yeah. let me finish, come what may, and it is far better that their votes come to me than go to the Tory, which is the only other option in my, in my constituency. Chucker, do you support Tim Walker and Guy Kiddy? Uh, I don't, and I'll tell you why. Labour is not a Remain party. I had a exchange with the leader of Momentum, Laura Parker, um, this week, uh, and she was demanding the Liberal Democrats and other Remain parties stand down in all kinds of places in favour of Labour. Uh, now, leave aside the fact that they're not a Remain party. I then said, well, you know, are you prepared to reciprocate? Will Labour stand down in favour of Remain candidates? Say, for example, the South West, where Nigel Farage says that the Liberal Democrats can win. Um, would Labour just stand down in those seats? And she said, absolutely not, we won't do that. Uh, and I said, why? And she, she actually said, well, we're not a Remain party or a Leave party. Um, and this is the problem, is that uh, 
for an alliance to work, it genuinely needs to be an alliance and there needs to be reciprocal arrangements. And we've managed to reach reciprocal arrangements with the Green Party and Plaid Cymru and also the Women's Equality Party. They've stood down, for example. They've stood aside for me in the cities of London and Westminster and for our candidate in Sheffield, Hallam, too. Um, so we've done it where we can. And um, for you know good pro-Europeans like Dominic Grieve and Anna Subri, for example, we've stood aside for them. Labour has completely refused to do that at all. And so what I would say to people who are desperate to see these types of arrangements, particularly in the Labour Party, I've said to Labour Remainers, go and speak to your leadership about this, because they were actually approached at the outset of the Unite to Remain project about being involved. And this is, by the way, in spite of the fact that, you know, the Remain Party is involved, we don't regard the Labour Party as a Remain Party, but they dismissed it completely out of hand. And they've been pretty hardcore on the record, no pats, no alliances, no arrangements, we are standing everywhere. And so it makes it very difficult to reach any kind of um, agreement when you have a party that's behaving like that. Isn't the problem, though, that if you've been consistent, I mean, the Lib Dems should surely step aside for David Gork, who's now declared as an independent. I mean, what's the difference between David Gork and Dominic Grieve? Or Chris Leslie as well. I mean, is there what, what is the... Can you well, tell, explain to me what the difference is, if there is any? So or, or would you personally like to actually well, let I, David look, Gork get elected? Look, I, I, as I think I've proved this year, I'm not the most tribal of politicians. Um, but there is a problem with um, uh, David Gork. Um, now, obviously, very much welcome the things that he said uh, this morning, where he was basically saying he thinks you know the best result would be the Liberal Democrats getting as many members of Parliament as possible and holding, you know, essentially holding the balance yeah. of power and, and ridding this country of political extremism, which is dominant in the two uh, other main political parties. But of course, one of the problems is we are like a completely unequivocal Remain party, and by his own admission, David was saying that he actually wants to get. Brexit done, but albeit a, a soft Brexit. Well, he wants um, a second referendum, though. That was his thing this morning, which yeah, he no, thought no, no, might, I hear, the Lib Dems might. I, I, hear, I, I, I hear that. I hear that. I mean, of course, you know, there, there are other people in the Liberal Democrat family who, you know, have other views on this. You know, he remember David oversaw um, twelve billion pounds worth of welfare cuts coming through after twenty fifteen. Now. I'm not surprised if you hear Labour people saying, you know, why don't you just adopt uh, David Gork as your candidate? Because then they can attack us for, you know, basically having somebody who is an architect to twelve billion pounds worth of cuts. But they're already Sam Gmart, who's uh, Cameron's PPS. No, sorry, Sam Gmart, who's ca- who was Cameron's PPS during these. Well, he wasn't. This, he was. He wasn't actually the Secretary of State that implemented them, and he actually walked out of the party and yeah. left it. So, um, look, these things are difficult, and I, li- I like David. I think you know he is the the best of. One Nation Toryism um, that has been ejected from that party. But to all those demanding these things of the Liberal Democrats, I mean, for goodness sake, we've stood stood aside for a number of very prominent individuals for other parties. No other party is doing that. Why, you know, I I don't know. There's somehow this kind of sense of superiority that says, well, if it's Labour, they don't have to do certain things. You you, you dance to their tune. You you good little Liberal Democrats, you do as you're told. It's all rather patronising and it's unreasonable because it's demanding things of the Liberal Democrats, which isn't, which are not being demanded of the other parties. And the parties that are prepared to have those reciprocal arrangements, we've done, you know, we've we've put in place a, a, an alliance that you know includes sixty odd seats, um, and I think that is a good thing. Um, but please don't ask of us what you're not going to ask. I'm of just others. trying to see whether what, what the what the what the working out is because what is the difference between Dominic Grieve. And David well, Dominic Green is a Remainer, and um, David Gorky isn't. So that, that's that's, well, that's that's the bar, that, is that, it? That is one. Right. Uh, Chris Leslie uh, may be a better example. And also, also. <clears throat> the other thing is, is that um, this is not. Uh, 
I think one of the things that people don't appreciate about the Liberal Democrats, and frankly, before I joined the party in the summer, people didn't, it is not like a top-down kind of outfit. Like, you know, it's not like Labour where the NEC, you know, basically is rigged so the leader can get their way and then everything is imposed from on high against other people's wishes. That is just not how the Liberal Democrats work. It's an incredibly democratic party. Um, And so, you know, it's one thing to ask. It's another thing, of course, to get you have to get all the parts of the party to agree. When I was um, accepted into the Liberal Democrats as a new MP in June, um, that wasn't just determined on high. Um, the local party in Streatham basically had a veto on whether or not I would join or not, and and other there are other important relevant parts too. So, you mentioned actually, um, you know, it's not like Labour. I just wondered actually culturally, what does it feel like? How different does it feel being oh, in being? You, is, now you're obviously going to say it's a reef compared to Corbyn's Labour Party. Yeah. What does it? How different is it from Ed I Miliband's Labour it, Party? It, I, I never rather than the current Labour Party. Right. Okay. So um, I. I feel this quite acutely because I never really gelled very well with the culture of the Labour Party, full stop. Really? Yeah. This Lo- is the same guy I used to interview regularly, who yeah, was yeah, yeah. Labour to his core, Compass member. Ah, but well, hang on just a minute. Well, soft left. Yeah, well, let me come back to that, actually, because that's a really good... That hits the nail on the head. And one thing I do want to distinguish is between the local Labour Party as it was in those days. It's very different now in Streatham. But that was never a problem. Um, You know, I never had a problem. But when I got involved in the national politics, um, there were two or three things that I found very difficult. One was I I was not born into the Labour Party. I'm not of it culturally. And so I don't fit a particular stereotype. I broke all the rules. I was this mixed race guy but with a middle-class background, which is just not... In what, what the Labour Party is used to um, and that was definitely a problem and then also the factionalism of the Labour Party you're either in that camp or the other camp and even when ideologically there's a degree of agreement as there was during the Blair Brown years they had these factions which was you look back at it now and it all seems rather ridiculous and so there was this big issue about how you used to ask me the question Paul at the time how can you have been involved in Compass and do things with them and you want management and then you want progress in the Liberal Democrats that would not be an issue whatsoever right? because there are different shades of Liberal Democrat um, I'm a social Democrat with Liberal values very much like Vince Cable there are others who are more you know uh, more libertarian um, but it's not an issue nobody cares about but I mean, culturally, and, 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 that, and that's culture, what I find interesting. Really, you and Ed re- Miliband got on really well. Yeah, you know, you, you were kind of two peas in the pod. Same yes. bit of the party, soft yeah. left as, I mean, as it was perceived. Well, I'll tell you something, actually. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking it's I mean, interesting culturally whether you've think, moved or... Because no, he, he won't say he's moved. I mean, No, I, I, I think um, Ed, uh, he won't forgive me for saying this, but in some senses he is quite... Liberal Democrat in his own Ooh. culture. <laughs> he was always famed as being the person who got on with both sides of the kind of Blair Brown axis, you know. And yeah, what, he, he was the emissary from Planet Fuck. From Planet Fuck. <laughs> so, <laughs> in that sense, but he's always That's been. What the Blair he's always, <laughs> I think, romantically, he's always politically romantically always been, you know, quite left-minded. Yeah. Um, but I assumed you were as well. You see, I oh, no, I'm you a social. I'm a social democrat. I ah, would right. say actually that Ed is kind of actually more left. He is more soft left and always was. Whereas I'd say I've always been a kind of. European Social Democrat, if I put right. it like that. Right. Um, and I believe in a regulated market, in a social market economy, whereas I think that 
Ed is much more orientated towards right. socialism. That's interesting. And I, I never was. And so all of these things, this is why I used to put my foot in it. I, I, you know, I, I haven't always got things right during my time in politics and have rubbed noses up the wrong way and haven't helped myself sometimes. But I think also I just didn't really sit well with the culture of the Labour Party. It was, I tell you, it was so refreshing when I was writing my conference speech for the, for, for the Liberal Democrat conference in Bournemouth because I used to find it tortuous doing my bloody conference speech when I was a shadow business secretary for the Labour Party because I'd, do, I'd write what I wanted to say and uh, I, I remember my first outing at the conference and I just it just totally bombs my speech because it was not written. I didn't write it for the audience. I wrote what I thought we needed to be saying. Um, and so the next year I was, you know, thinking what's going to appeal to whose box do I tick here and which union's going to be happy with this and that. Right. Whereas the, and, and I would spend weeks in this bloody thing. I'd start writing it like in July. Um, whereas with the Liberal Democrat conference, I kind of knew exactly what I wanted to say, but I hadn't written the speech. So I got there on the Saturday at like 6 p.m., did a whole range of fringe events. And I started writing the thing at 11. It was up to 3.30 in the morning writing it because I had to do my run through of it. And then I, I just and, – and, and it wasn't – it was – easy compared to Labour really because what I was writing was exactly where the audience were. Right. And did you There have was a, that synergy. Did, I remember that moment in 2015 where you did launch a campaign, what was mm. almost the leadership mm. campaign, you pulled out for various reasons. But looking back, do you have any regrets at all? Or do you think actually your instinct kicked in and, and that there was something then that made you think, actually, I can't do this. This, this is my party. Or I think there was a bit of that, to be honest. I mean, the, the immediate thing was uh, I just didn't... I knew I was going to come under a tremendous amount of scrutiny and pressure, you know, the first person of colour to potentially be leading one of the main parties in Western Europe. So, I mean, people say, you know, I wasn't naive about that. But I think what I, what I hadn't anticipated was um, the speed with which um, everyone around me would be subject to the same treatment. Um, and even actually, I mean, um, you look at the Miliband brothers, um, Marin, she didn't like when initially they came to prominence, she didn't come under all that kind of scrutiny, in spite of the fact that the Miliband family are quite well known. I remember I did talk to Ed about it afterwards. Um, and, you know, when you're, you're, you know, the then father of your girlfriend who you've never met... Um, the first time you have to have a conversation with him is to apologise for a whole bunch of photographers turning up. I mean, he's my father-in-law and he's, he's fine with it now. But, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of know something's wrong about the whole thing. And um, that's what precipitated the withdrawal. But I think there were other things at play. I didn't think I was actually ready, to be frank. Um, I think that... And I, I'm not sure anybody who stood in that leadership contest in 2015 was ready or had had the time to actually think about what they wanted to do, not just with the party, but the country. You know, all of us to varying degrees, but particularly the people who served in government, you, you do not have the headspace to think and consider what you really want to do, the direction you think the country should go. Um, and it showed. Because, of course, Jeremy... Corbyn had had the time, he'd had three decades of not really, you know, to work that all out and really think about it because he hadn't had responsibility and could speak, you know, spoke on his own behalf, not on behalf of the party. Um, but it really showed. And I kind of had a sense of that. Um, and so, although the, the, the main principal reason was the effect on the family, that was part of it. And I suppose, yeah, I mean, I, I, I never truly felt of the Labour Party. Um, and what do you say to people like, I mean, David Lammy, for example, who, who obviously has done 
fantastic work on Windrush mm. and has really made a name for himself the older he is and yeah. the, the more he's been around in Parliament. Now, he's being talked of as a possible um, future Labour leader. Um, if he became Labour leader, would you find... And he, and he somehow changed the Labour Party. Mm. Would you find that remotely tempting to go back? No. Or do you, and, and, and do you think he'd be a good leader of the Labour Party, by the way? I think David would be a good leader of the Labour Party. I think he's really found his voice, and I think he's an illustration, because when he came in in 2001, I think it was, or 2000, um, and he just went up the ranks very, very quickly. Again, a bit like me, actually. He caused a lot of resentment amongst colleagues who briefed heavily against him. That's in the Labour Party, never mind in other parties. Um, and, and I think you can see how he has grown um, I have tremendous respect for for David. I think he's a fantastic politician. Um, so, but no, I'm I'm a Liberal Democrat. I always have been, to be frank. It was the first political party I ever joined, and uh, and I've really come back home. And I have absolutely no desire to go back to the Labour Party. Yeah. I don't look wistfully back at all to my time in the Labour Party. Just to come back to this election and, and this, sorry, we've this, gone off. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> yeah. oh, I was riffing. No, 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 it's good. You two are old mates, so it's, it's nice to rekindle it. Um, but just to come back to this election. And the fact that Labour won't stand down for the Lib Dems and vice versa. The thing that normal people outside of Westminster always ask me is, why do the Lib Dems and Labour have so much beef, Rachel? It is a good question. Um, well, they would kind of say that it's not new. It goes back to creation of the, the Labour Party when um, Labour people would say the working class didn't feel represented by the, the then Liberal Party. And in more recent years, I think it's down to the, the coalition austerity. Um, some people I spoke to about this in the Labour Party say they feel particularly strong about just just Winston's role in the coalition um, and um, her arguing, for example, for a statue of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> it was one thing that came up more, more than once. Um, and I think that also points to the fact that you've taken in a lot of Conservative Party MPs and like like you were saying earlier, that makes it difficult for them to agree to any kind of coalition. And more broadly, I think generally the the Labour Party are quite threatened by the Lib Dems <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. It's interesting, is it? Because I, I, well, I'm no, fr- I, I never, I tell you, what, I never got it really. And uh, in beef. my old compass, the day, beef. Was, right. I just like this is ridiculous. Yeah. Because um, you were in favour of sort of <clears> even <throat> then, weren't you? Contacts with, with yeah. Lib Dems. And yeah, it's yeah, proper absolutely. beef as well, isn't it? Or, it is. Yeah. I think what it is is. Um, there's a number of things. Um, I think, first of all, the, the culture is different. So Labour is like religion. You know, there is a pull on a tribalism and a kind of emotional connection to the party, which is not mirrored in the Liberal Democrats in the sense of there is the sense that Labour can do no wrong. And I think to some extent that's why a lot of people stick with the Labour Party, even when it is doing the wrong thing, like, for example, all the anti-Jewish racism. Um, it is like religion in that sense. And to be part of the Liberal Democrats is just not the psyche of the party. Um, I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is there is this this kind of sensibility in the Labour Party that thinks it has a monopoly over what it is to be progressive, um, to be internationalist, uh, to care about equality. Um, and they have a rather patronising view towards the Liberal Democrats. They're just this kind of afterthought. And we might have to work cross-party with them now and then, but really we're the big show in town. 
And that, if, if you want to collaborate with people, that's a very old-fashioned way to operate, and it goes down very badly in the Liberal Democrats. And having now been on the receiving end of it, like this whole thing, stand down for Labour, but they're not going to stand down for you, I just find intolerable. Um, and, and when you confront Labour people about how unreasonable that is, they're almost like affronted that you dare to suggest that the Labour Party should have to reciprocate or should have any obligation, because we're the Labour Party, for goodness sake, we don't have to do that for you. Um, so there is a lot about that. And then I think, you know, just for the third party to survive, you have to scrap, you have to... F- you have to elbow your way to be at the table because it's not just that the constitution is partly rigged against you, uh, half post uh, to one side, but the whole establishment is rigged against you just to get the broadcasters to present the fact that there are three main choices is like a, it is a mission. And we'll so, come on to that, yeah. you know, um, I think that you, you the, 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 the Liberal Democrats have always had to be you know, have sharp elbows and really stand their ground and stand, you know, stand up for themselves. And they don't, we don't just automatically get coverage. We do it, you know, more so at the moment, but this is not the the usual run of the mill. And so I think that collection of factors is, is kind of a thing. I think I think an awful lot of it is about the first past the post system. When I, I previously worked up in Scotland where they've got PR and there's just there is like an absence of this bitterness yeah. between Labour and Lib Dem. So they were in it, coalition, weren't they, in government? Yeah, obviously. yeah, and, and it just works together in a different way, so... Sorry. Talking of coalitions... Hey, uh, <laughs> neat segue! <laughs> I know Joe Swinson's running to be next PM, but the Lib Dems are currently under 20% in the polls. Um, you've also, I believe, ruled out any kind of pacts, even confidence and supply. The thing is I say about this whole, this PM stuff, it's so ridiculous. What do you expect us to say? We don't want our leader to become the Prime Minister. To become the Prime Minister. But let's, the, let's say for argument's sake she's not the next Prime Minister, fine. and but the Lib Dems are in a king-making position yeah. come December the Which 13th. I think, you know, I think there's a, there's a really high possibility that Absolutely. that can happen. Yeah. I think, I mean, Farage, you know, talking to the Brexit Party people, it's just funny, you know, you do broadcast with these people and you kind of to compare notes and um, what is clear and I actually think a lot of people in the lobby are missing by the way Paul is that I, ca- I literally cannot think of any Tory seat on the current polling unless Labour puts on 15 or 20 points from here I literally cannot think of a Tory seat they are in line to take right now they are purely in a defensive position and uh, go, if you go and check with Ladbrokes, Ladbrokes has got betting odds on pretty much every constituency. In no constituency that they don't already hold are Labour the favourites. In fact, in a number of the ones they do already hold, they're not the favourites, whereas we are the favourites in a number of Tory-held seats. And um, that, for me, does illustrate just how important our role is in this. It's, you never mind whether we might get a majority, but actually, even if we get... You know, I don't know, 50 or 60 seats. It could be really decisive at this um, general election. Um, and in that sense, you know, I, one of the things I say to people in cities of London and Westminster, literally your vote can help stop Brexit here. Because if we take the seat off the Tories in a new parliament in terms of the arithmetic for a people's vote, then obviously we massively increase the chances disproportionately of getting a people's vote with but, a reduction in Tory MPs. But if you're not going to put Corbyn into number 10, how does that come about? Well, I tell you, it's very different about what happens on Brexit as opposed to the formation of government. I, I, I personally don't think we need to get into all this, you know, what would you do in this, in this scenario or that scenario. We put our best foot forward and people would deliver us so many MPs. But the one thing we can definitely can say is that the number one priority for us in a new parliament will be stopping Brexit. And you can Even if that means Jeremy Corbyn delivering it through a referendum? 
Well, well, that's that. That is a how how the arithmetic stacks up. I don't know, but all I do know is that with us being in a position to reduce the numbers of Tory MPs, then we increase the likelihood that you can actually guarantee that you've got the numbers for a people's vote. And so I don't think... I mean, the issue of whether and what, conf- what who forms a government and the configuration is actually quite a different thing from the numbers to get legislation through the House of Commons. Don't forget, in the last House of Commons we've just had, you've had a government which hasn't been the only outfit legislating and doing things. Um, you know, in a minority government... You know, it's now become a convention, frankly, that may have been established in the 2017 to 19 Parliament that with minority governments, no longer do you have the situation where the executive is the only legis- proper legislator in town. Um, you will have legislators from the back benches. And so I, d- I don't think stopping Brexit is inextricably connected to who forms the government. It's really the numbers game. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, there's been a massive row over spending pledges this week, with Tory claims that Labour would spend £1.2 trillion extra quickly picked apart. But Labour's own pledge to boost health spending by £26 billion has run into trouble after the Tories pointed out that introducing a four-day working week could actually turn it into a cut because the NHS would have to spend more on hiring staff to cover the extra hours. Let's listen to Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth's defence of Labour's health policy. That is some... In ten years' time... When, when, we've risen, when we've raised productivity in the economy and there'll be a big review to see if the changes in workplace working around automation and things like that mean that, mean that workers across the year can reduce their hours. The idea that there's going to be a four-day week in the NHS on December the 13th, which Matt Hancock was suggesting in his press release last night, was just nonsense. It was laughable. I couldn't believe it. Well, literally could not believe it when that press release came out. We all laughed out loud in the office. Uh, Paul, how much do voters notice these rows over spending? Obviously, they don't notice the detail, yeah. but they do get a big picture. And I think the problem right now for the government certainly is that they've bought into Labour's narrative of, you know, you you, you just turn on the spending taps to try and fix a lot of the problems with the, the decaying British infrastructure, you know, whether it's health service or whether it's roads or whatever. Um, and there's, there's an implicit admission there that for the last nine years, nearly 10 years, we've basically underfunded a lot of this stuff. Now, I find it slightly odd that the government want to do that because the stronger ground for them is to say, look, we had to do all this stuff. We had to bounce the books. It was painful, but we're now in a position where we can spend. We wouldn't have been in this position if we weren't sensible with money. But they're not saying that. They're basically just buying into Labour's narrative, look, you need loads of money to, to fix these problems. Um, and I think as a result, there is an opportunity for Chucker and, and the Lib Dems in terms of fiscal prudence. Um, and, you know, if you are one of those moderate Tories uh, in the seats that like that Chucker's contending, then th- there is an appetite there maybe for people saying, hold on a sec, you can't borrow everything. You can't keep borrowing. There's got to be some limit on this. And it'll be interesting to see whether any of that comes out in the, in the remaining few weeks, whether there's any appetite for it, because it's such a contrast to 2015 or even to 2010 when the deficit, borrowing, were massive. And Ed Miliband panicked so much in 2015. He had to write on the first page of his manifesto there will be not a penny of extra borrowing to fund any of these day-to-day, ta- um, day-to-day policy changes. And, and, he, and he and Ed Balls had a big debate about whether it should go on the front page of the manifesto and thought, right, well, let's kill it. Um, the word deficit haunted him throughout that campaign and the TV debates, you name it. Um, and uh, I know deficit and borrowing are different, but it, it's the same point, which is, can you have all this on the never-never? And 
it's interesting. The Lib Dem, Ed Davies already nibbled at it, but I'd be interested to see how much more impact and how receptive those moderate Tories are to that message or whether overall they just think, actually, my gut, actually, I'm a Tory at heart. I, you know, I'm still going to vote Tory. And Boris is a liberal Tory and this spending, I quite like this spending stuff because that's, that's me. I don't know. I yeah. don't think they think Boris is a liberal Tory. <laughs> um, I mean, from the research that we've done, uh, polling-wise and um, otherwise, I mean, uh, Boris Johnson and also Jeremy Corbyn are deeply, deeply unpopular. I think people don't... I mean, Labour people don't realise how unpopular Jeremy Corbyn is and Tory people do not realise quite how unpopular Boris Johnson is. I mean, it's really quite visceral. Um, but they're both lying. Um, everybody wants to spend more money. We want to spend more money, um, but at least we have a, you know, an identified way of how we're going to do that. Um, and we're not pretending, for example, that our fifty billion pound remain bonus will pay for absolutely everything. When we bring out our manifesto, we've already got all the kind of Excel spreadsheets on how we'll fund it. We are going to be really honest about how you pay for it. It's like it's like the NHS. We're not pretending that we can have Scandinavian levels of public services and health provision on American levels of taxation, which is why we're going to put a penny on the pound of basic income tax to help provide the funding that you that we need, which will help channel an extra 30 billion odd into the health service. But I think I think people need honesty. And I don't I, I don't think actually they believe this, this spending race, I don't think it's going to work for for either of them. There's also the issue actually on infrastructure, on whether you can actually get the money out of the door to invest in projects, whether you've actually got enough for these capital spending infrastructure projects, enough shovel-ready projects that you can actually put the money into. And if you speak to the guys at the IFS and others, their issue isn't whether you can afford to borrow to fund these capital projects. It's whether there are enough that you can actually get moving and get, you know. Um, So I think we're just in, I think we're kind of treating the the, the public, well, they are, the the other two main parties are treating the public like fools. And I think that they'll, they'll get found out or they have been found out. Well, Rachel, voters' first contact with the kind of detail of these debates might come in the TV debates, um, the first of which is next week between Corbyn and Johnson. They're going head-to-head. Who has the most to lose or gain? Uh, Well, Boris Johnson, the incumbent, definitely has the most to lose, I would say. It's kind of debating is very much his forte, though, right from his days at Oxford up to the vote leave campaign this is this is his, his arena he loves being the center of attention um he's really high in the polls in comparison to Boris Johnson um, sorry in comparison to Jeremy Corbyn so it's it, it's got a he's got most to lose but, but I, think, I wonder if people might decide that he's a bit too too posh or rambles a bit so seeing him up up close and in that much detail might be just interesting to see how that turns out um Corbyn on the other hand is kind of if you believe the polls, people couldn't have a, a worse opinion of him. Um, dis- they dislike him so much, so he has kind of an opportunity to change their mind. Um, I think a lot of the media coverage kind of tends to paint Jeremy Corbyn as this really extreme figure, but then when you see him in debates, he comes across as a bit more mild-mannered, so that might work in work in his favour, but he can also come across as quite aloof and um, disinterested, and that can also make him seem a bit suspicious so it'd be very interesting to see what actual strategy they take on the day yeah he's always got nothing to lose the Lib Dems unfortunately aren't included in this one mm. um, well let's see we're in court on Monday you're in court on Monday mm-hmm. that's interesting I think it's really interesting because obviously Corbyn more than Johnson wants a head to head with Johnson um, precisely because it, it, it cuts out the Lib Dems and, and frames it as a straight choice of who's going to be Prime Minister. 
And, you know, in those Labour Tory marginals where the Lib Dems are third and, you know, that that is the game in town. Um, to what extent will those voters be squeezed? You know, the people who are sceptical about Corbyn, who are Labour people and the people who are sceptical about Johnson, um, the Tory natural supporters. When they see that debate, it'll be quite interesting what their reaction is, whether they th- just throw their hands up at the end of it and say, oh, right, I'm confirmed now. I'm not, I don't like either of them. But then what do they do? Do they sit at home and not vote or do they switch? Do they do they say, actually, the people more in tune with my values are, you know, the Lib Dems or the Greens? Or, or, or I think or this is a very, very unpredictable. I mean, I think it's deeply wrong. Um, and you would expect me to say that. I mean, there's all, look, there's all kinds of reasons you can advance as to why it's wrong that Joe isn't in that debate. But I think the, the one that is the most important is that it is the Brexit election and neither of the two people debating want to stop Brexit when a sizable proportion of the British public, more than a third of the British public, want to abandon it altogether. I mean, six million people signed a petition to revoke Article 50 without there even being a general election or a referendum. And they are being completely left out of the picture here, which I think is wrong. However, I have to say, I mean, I I take what Rachel says about uh, Boris's kind of debating abilities. From what I've witnessed in the House of Commons, those two debating are the worst advert for British politics. Now, maybe it's just the kind of um, ball pit of the, uh, the House of Commons that promotes that style of debate, and in a studio it would be different. But I think there's a good chance that actually none of the above could be the winners um, from that uh, TV debate if the kind of tenor of debate that you get in the Commons is anything to go by. They're not good debaters, frankly. I... I, I In the public school kind of Etonian arena, maybe, but I've been deeply unimpressed. I don't think Boris is not a very good Commons performer. Just before we move on, oh, go on, Rachel. uh, No, I was just going to say, what will will Jo do on the night if she isn't included in the debate? Will she film a a clip or does she have any? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they're they're doing another show. Um, CITV think because there's going to be an hour's gap and then the others will get to respond that that's okay. But, of course, in order for them to respond, you have to replay all the clips from the previous debate, debate, the the, the head-to-head. So not only do they have the head-to-head with no one in it, they then will be replaying quite big chunks of it to get the reaction of these other party leaders. It's deeply, deeply unfair. And ITV are making a political decision, um, which is... Paul said earlier that this is four-party politics, and ITV are making a decision here where they're saying, no, it's not, it's two-party politics, it's 20th century politics, and that's quite deliberate. I mean, I, I, I attended the meeting with the ITV executives on this, and they, they, they don't, you know, they're not pretending that that, that is the way they see things. They, the, the issue is they just think that it's lawful for them to do it under the Ofcom code. But it's basically, and in that sense, it's the establishment looking after the establishment. But I guess a lot of the campaign will be on online, won't it? A lot will be happening on Facebook and, yeah. on, and on Twitter on the same evening. So. Yeah. I mean, I think in, the, in that sense, I mean, 2010 is different because we all thought 2010 was going to be the first um, online election, didn't we? And in the end, it turned out to be the first TV election, like TV debate election. Um, and you didn't have every, you, you mean like I'm not sure you, were you guys going in 2010 like this? You weren't. You were yeah. you were somewhere I else. I think. So, but but this the, the very fact we're doing this podcast illustrates just how how platforms and forms of, of getting a message across have changed. And so, I think the impact of the TV anyway is somewhat stunted by the proliferation of social media and us all walking around with devices. Well, this brings us nicely to the quiz, Yay. which is all about TV election debates. 
just three quick questions. Just come in when I, whenever you want, uh, and points are handed out fairly arbitrarily. Good. Uh, Very exciting. <laughs> we like arbitrary. It's a good one to test <laughs> Chuckers' uh, oh Lib Dem chops. Uh, <laughs> who, who was stood on either side of Nick Clegg in the 2015 ITV leaders debate? Who was stood on either side? I thought that was a trick 2015? question. Yeah. In the ITV oh, leaders debate? Yeah. So was there, were there seven in there? Was that the one yeah. where there were seven? I'll give you that clue, yeah, since you... Um, uh, was I'm Paul Nuttall... Sturgeon no, and... No, no. No. I've already was failed. Was it alphabetical? Do you want to have a go? Um, was was it Cameron and... Um, Natalie Bennett? There's one. Yes. One point Half for Paul. A point. Uh, and... Oh, so it was, uh, was alphabetical. Miliband? Each was side. It? No. No. I honestly can't God. remember. Oh, um, what's she called? Beehive Woman. Wales. Nope. Nope. Um, uh, not Leanne name. Woods. Leanne Woods. Um, She'll appreciate me calling her beehive one. Uh-huh. Welsh listeners. Um, oh, God, you're killing us it's here. It's Farage. Oh, my ah. God. Wow. Question number two. What was the reason Rory Stewart gave for taking off his tie in the middle of a Tory leadership election debate this summer? Oh, this was a classic excuse, wasn't it? Was oh, he hot what or was something? it? I thought it was warm, yeah. What was it? Oh. It was sort of pretty weird. It was odd, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, you've stumped us. Oh, it was something like... Um, it, but he scripted it because he took it off beforehand in a, in a video showing him taking it off, so he'd practised the move, hadn't he? Um, oh, I don't know. Altitude sickness because he was so high up on that stool. I don't know. Was it like, <laughs> a, was it like the pressure of the arena or something like that? Or? No, no. It, well, it, he said, I thought maybe if I could take my tie off we could get back to a bit of reality... I felt we were moving off into an alternate reality. Um, <laughs> That's very weird. Yeah. Dear listener, Chucker is wearing a tie in this podcast. Can I just say, you know, I've loosened it though. Look, it's top yeah. <laughs> ones ever. Done. Yeah, I think that's the first tie we've had on the podcast. I think podcast. that is the first tie we've had on the podcast. That's, oh, that's, that's, that's you know, a bit don't want to let purple it down. power tie. But, it, but is it a Savile Row suit or is it M and S? What is it? This come, is on, not, come on, flip, flip the label. This is a <laughs> Alexandra Wood suit. Oh, that sounds Very fancy. Nice. We have another quiz question. Uh, what was Theresa May's excuse for not taking part in the big seven-way debate in 2017? Oh, God, that, the one that Amber Rudd took part in. Yeah. Um, in spite of the fact her dad had died yes, the day before. Shocking, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the way they've treated her since. Yeah. Um, what was her excuse? Did she have a cold? Had to wash her hair? Coronation Street was not on. even that. Um, really, really, that. really, really, really didn't want to. Uh, <laughs> it was a wedding anniversary. Basically, <laughs> I'll give you a point for that. No, he said. She said, "I'm not scared." Basically, but she said, "I think it's actually about getting out and about, meeting voters, and hearing directly from voters." <laughs> that, that went well for her. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, unfortunately, well that's yeah. Boris Johnson today. Well, yeah. What's happened today? Well, that's no. all we've got time for this week. <laughs> I have to do some plugging before we get to that. So. Oh, I thought it was a neat segue. So, uh, thanks to my guests and for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday and get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. And now, Paul. Yeah. We'll just leave you with Boris Johnson out and about meeting voters in flood hit South Yorkshire. Is there anything in particular that you'd like us to do, Ted? No, thank you. No, you've got everything you need there.